0: Good morning. I'm Sarah Rich. I'm a senior here at Goshen College, but um, I had John D. Roth as a professor my first semester here um, for colloquium, so got to know him a little bit through that. Um, John D. Roth is a professor in the history department here, as well as uh, director of the Mennonite Historical Library and editor of the Mennonite Quarterly Review. He graduated from Goshen College in 1981 and went on to get his doctorate from the University of Chicago in 1989. One uh, little known fact about John Dee, as he is fondly known by students, is that before he got into the history field, he was in the baseball field When he was 17, he was invited to try out for the Pittsburgh Pirates, but um, he was too slow and didn't end up making the team. (laughs) Anyhow, it is fortunate for Goshen College that John Dee did forgo his big-time baseball career because he is a well-loved professor here on campus. He is especially renowned among students for his ever respectful pacifist demeanor and also for his habit of aggressively pushing up his shirt sleeves um, when he gets really invested in explaining some aspect of Mennonite history. <laughs> Anyhow, I'm as eager as all of you are to hear what John D. has to say on the topic of naked Anabaptists. So please welcome John D. Roth.
1: Get that out of the way. Uh, Thank you, Sarah, Uh, and good morning to all of you. Uh, Although I don't really uh, feel that old, uh, this is my 26th year of teaching at Goshen College, and every fall Uh, I take great delight in watching a remarkable thing unfold. All summer long, the campus is basically uh, quiet. It's almost eerie. I sit in the third floor of Wise and look out of my office window, and the sidewalks are mostly bare. There's not much life. And then suddenly, in the space of a weekend or so, uh, the place lights up again Uh, with new energy and excitement, with cars in the parking lot, people carrying Uh, sofas into dorm rooms and overnight it seems the campus comes back to life uh, not only with new energy uh, but also with new people. Each year uh, about 25 percent of you students and maybe 15 percent of the faculty and staff are new to Goshen College and because uh, you are here, all of you uh, first years and transfers and new faculty and staff, We are a different place. And in the next few years, you and those who follow you are going to make this school a different place than it was before you arrived. And yet here's the uh, interesting and complicated twist. Even though we go through this constant cycle of regeneration, there's also something about Goshen College that's not new at all. It's a little bit like your skin cells. Uh, I read recently that every 20 or 30 days, all of your visible skin cells die, and new ones uh, take their place. So that uh, every month, what you see in the mirror uh, is actually uh, a new person. And yet you know that uh, inside, you haven't uh, really changed that much. So Goshen College, Uh, No, that's a bad analogy. I don't want to make you people, graduates, feel like you're sloughed off uh, skin cells. Uh, but, But the deeper point is that Goshen College is transformed and renewed by your presence. In fact, every four or five years, there's a complete turnover in student faces on campus. And yet somehow, the identity of Goshen College endures. There's a character to Goshen College that is bigger than you or me which is really no different from any other group that we're uh, a a part of. Our families, our churches, the company you worked for this summer, uh, the basketball team, every community you join has a life and identity that's shaped by your presence but is somehow bigger than you. Goshen College is now 116 years old. A great deal has changed over the course of a century and will continue to change, and yet there are also some enduring characteristics that are worth noting and naming. One of those is the fact that for most of its history, Goshen College has been owned by the Mennonite Church and has maintained a very close relationship to a a particular theological tradition called Anabaptism. Uh, Some of you here today already know a lot about Mennonites and the Anabaptist tradition. Maybe you grew up attending a Mennonite church or you've been living in a community where there are a lot of Mennonites. But I can also easily imagine that there are some of you uh, here who have only a rough notion of who Mennonites are. You know them as kind of a shorthand based mostly on impressions, uh, perhaps positive, perhaps negative. And some of you may not have even a clue as to who Mennonites or Anabaptists are. It would be interesting to collect our impressions, to know what kind of associations or images come to mind when you hear the word Mennonite. Impressions are almost never without a grounding in the truth, but they are often fragmentary. They're partial truths floating on the surface. The title of my presentation this morning comes directly from a recent book by a British author, a man named Stuart Murray, called The Naked Anabaptist. Murray uh, knows that in North America, Uh, people often think of Mennonites in terms of a specific uh, subculture. Uh, White, German, uh, liberal first cousins of the Amish, uh, people associated with things like relief sales and quilts and pacifism and frugality uh, who tend to be cliquish and tribal. Yet uh, Murray is a Baptist uh, pastor and theologian and he's part of a renewal movement in Great Britain called the Anabaptist Network. And he and others are excited about their encounter with a a fresh expression of the Christian faith in a culture where organized religion is basically dead. And in this book, Murray tries to say, no, uh, those impressions are just uh, external trappings of one particular Anabaptist group. There's something more at the core, hence the term naked Anabaptist. His interest is to strip away the cultural, the exterior forms in order to reveal a deeper uh, essence beneath that. Murray's part of a a larger group outside the ethnic Mennonite tradition. It goes by various labels. Uh, Maybe you've heard of uh, Third Way or the New Monasticism or the Emergent Church or Sojourners or Mars Hill. Groups who are excited about the Anabaptist approach to the Christian faith, eager to share it with others, but not so sure about what it means to be Mennonite. In the brief time that we have this morning, I'd like to do something of the same thing in a very compressed form. I'd like to pull the veil back a bit and offer an inside perspective. I'd like to uh, lay bare, if you will, some of the essentials of the Mennonites and the Anabaptist tradition that gave birth to them, uh, in the hopes that anyone who's confused by those terms, who has bumped up against them only in the form of a kind of uh, in-group cultural expression, will leave this morning with a, a somewhat deeper understanding. Our time is short, so this will be a uh, this is going to be a Cliff's Notes summary. And I know that not all Mennonites who are listening in uh, would agree with everything I have to say, but uh, it turns out that's okay. We're, we're in an ongoing conversation. I wanna do this from three angles, again, very briefly. Uh, first, historically, where did these groups come from? What, is the, what are the terms Anabaptist and Mennonite mean? And then, uh, theologically, a very brief summary of Anabaptist Mennonite beliefs uh, in their ideal form. And finally, I'll conclude with some confessions, uh, a laying bare of some of our weaknesses, some of the contradictions and the ongoing struggles that are part of, of this tradition. First, uh, historical. Mennonites trace their birth 500 years ago to the 16th century and the upheaval of the Protestant Reformation. Before the Reformation, you might recall, uh, everyone in Europe was Catholic, baptized into the church as an infant. There was only one church. But then uh, Martin Luther and others uh, broke with the Catholic church. They raised questions about the uh, ritual practices of the church. They challenged the authority of the Pope. They insisted on the principle of scripture alone, that scripture should be the basis of Christian life And church, sola scriptura, and they argued that we're saved by grace alone, not by any external deeds. The first Anabaptists were part of that general excitement of the Reformation movement, but they thought that Luther and others didn't go far enough in applying the principles of Scripture alone to a more fundamental reform of church practices. One issue in specific was uh, the practice of baptism. Luther continued the Catholic practice of baptizing infants into the state church. And these more radical reformers insisted that no one was born a Christian. Following Jesus should be a decision. It should be a decision marked by a change in how you live. A decision made only after you understood the consequences. Uh, After all, they said Jesus taught to believe and be baptized. Uh, And so baptism is something that should follow belief. This might, uh, and so they they taught the uh, baptism of adults. Uh, or believers. This might make a lot of sense to many of you today, but in the 16th century, it was a radical concept. And the opponents of adult baptism, Catholic and Protestant alike, labeled these radicals anabaptists, which means re-baptizers. By the way, it doesn't mean anti-baptist, even though it sounds like that to, to, to some people. We're for baptism, but uh, the idea is baptizing believers. It was meant as a very negative uh, term, this, this label, because to rebaptize in the 16th century was considered a criminal offense, something worthy of the death penalty. Uh, those who were part of the movement, they said, we're not rebaptizing at all. We're just baptizing right the first time, but the label stuck. And so when I use the term Anabaptist, it refers to uh, radical Christians coming out of the 16th century who taught this idea of believers' baptism. They also tried to follow the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount uh, as literally as possible, which meant that they refused to swear oaths. They encouraged the sharing of material property. Uh, They gave, at least initially, a new status to women, to poor people, to people at the margins and they tried to put into practice Jesus' teaching to love all human beings, including their enemies. All of this implied that becoming a Christian meant a change in how you lived, how you looked at the world, and it led to a new view of the church as a voluntary gathering of believers rather than an institution controlled by the state. These teachings, again they might not sound so radical today, but these teachings got the Anabaptists into a lot of trouble. The early movement was a youth movement uh, shaped by a lot of people who were excited about their faith, who spoke freely, and that seemed very threatening to the established authorities. And it met with a great deal of resistance so that by the end of the 16th century, some three or 4,000 uh, Anabaptists uh, were uh, executed, were killed, were killed. Uh, for their convictions. Some by burning, uh, some by drowning, uh, others with explosives, uh, and uh, those stories are are told and remembered, and many thousands more um, were uh, uh, tortured, imprisoned, forced to flee as refugees, or um, uh, uh, forced to turn over their property. The Anabaptist movement eventually tamed down somewhat, uh, and authorities also grew more tolerant, but eventually the group divided roughly into three main branches. The Amish, which is a group many of us are familiar with. This happens to be a buggy from Lancaster rather than uh, LaGrange County. Uh, So the Amish are one group. The Hutterites, a group that you might not have heard about as much, they practice the principle of a community of goods and there are about 350 uh, Hutterite communities uh, in the western states and provinces of Canada. And then the Mennonites, uh, who look pretty much like you and and I, who you maybe wouldn't be able to distinguish by their dress, and yet have maintained some sense of connection to the Anabaptist groups. Mennonites named for uh, a Dutch leader, a former Catholic priest by the name of Menno Simons. What all of these groups have in common is a sense of tracing their beginnings to the 16th century Radical Reformation, uh, a set of core theological beliefs, even though it finds expression in slightly different ways, and uh, uh, more recently, uh, the reality of rapid growth. So that today there are about 1.6 million people in the Anabaptist tradition around the world in about 75 countries, most of them living outside of North America. So the most rapid growth of this tradition uh, in recent years has been in other countries. That's the historical context. Theologically, what is it that Anabaptists and Mennonites believe? Uh, This isn't an easy uh, question to answer because One thing you need to know is that, unlike the Catholic Church, we don't have a pope. We don't have a formal teaching office. We don't have 1,500 years of theological tradition that makes it clear to the 1.3 billion Catholics around the world what they believe. Um, Unlike the 68 million Lutherans, who are all united by a common confession of faith, the Augsburg Confession of 1530 pulls all of those Lutherans together in some sense of a unified identity, we don't have a single statement of doctrine that everyone who claims to be an Anabaptist upholds. We're Christ-centered. I hope that's uh, clear. If you've been attending chapels and convos this year, I hope that's clear. But that's true of every Christian group, um, every Christian college. A lot depends on what you mean by being Christ-centered. So I'd like to offer a very brief summary of of Anabaptist theology, of Mennonite uh, theology, by starting um, in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Don't worry, I'm not going to work systematically all through uh, uh, all through the other books, but I'd like to start in Genesis because there in the opening of Scripture we have a very clear picture of what it was that God intended for creation for humanity when God made the world. In those chapters we have a picture of a loving God who called creation into existence out of nothing, a separated light from dark, water from dry land, played in plants and animals, and then crafted a human being out of the dust of the earth and breathed into that form the breath of divine life. So that human beings ever since carry within us something of the divine image. The story, that the picture that emerges following the creation of humans is a picture of human beings living in intimate relationship with God. We we have a description early in Genesis of Adam and Eve walking together with God in the cool of the morning. We have uh, an image or a picture in our minds of uh, Adam and Eve uh, living in intimate relationships with each other. Adam and Eve, you might recall, are naked when they are. We come into this world naked, without clothes. And Adam and Eve originally didn't even notice. They're living in a relationship of trust and intimacy so that they're not self-conscious about presenting themselves to each other as they are. And we have also a picture of human beings living in full harmony with the created order itself, with nature. Now that's the ideal. That's the image that, that's that's the purpose for which we were created. And yet we know that right from the beginning, the reality of sin also is part of the story. And the consequences of sin as it unfolds in those brief chapters are very clear. As a consequence of sin, Adam and Eve suddenly begin to hide from God. God comes and they hide in the bushes. They're afraid to, to be seen face to face with God. Not only that, but they hide from each other. One of the first creative acts that Adam and Eve do is to make clothes for themselves so that now they are going to be, relate to each other with caution, they're not gonna reveal themselves to each other fully as they are. And we also know that as a consequence of the fall, human beings now live in a relationship of, um, uh, of, uh, of fear and of possession of creation so that as a result of sin, you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow. You're going to have to wrestle your food from creation. There's going to be snakes hiding in the grass ready to bite you in the heel. Now, that's that's a pretty sobering description of what it means to be human. And And yet, the rest of the biblical story is a grand and complicated, wonderful account of God saying, no, I'm not done yet of God patiently and persistently calling humanity back to that for which God intended at creation. And we see that unfolding in the stories of the Old Testament, a covenant with Abraham and Sarah, the gift of a law to Moses, the idea of kings who are not only powerful but who also care about justice, who treat other people decently, they call of the prophets to say the measure of your holiness before God is going to be in how you treat the stranger and the outcast, the people at the margin. And always that hope for a Messiah that somebody is going to come that will reveal to us the fullness of God's plan and intention for creation. And in the Christian tradition, we say in the coming of Christ that God has revealed God's self to humanity in the fullest, most complete form we know. That Jesus is God in human form. What's the character of of the Jesus that is revealed? When Jesus comes, uh, some of the scriptures say, Jesus is the new Adam and creates the possibility for a new creation. Well, one of the things that Jesus does is teach his followers that they should love each other as God loves us, which is to say unconditionally, without conditions. God loves you fully and completely as you are, even though you don't deserve it. It says in Romans 5 that God loved us while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God. God loved us. In the Christian language, that's, that's called grace. God loves you fully and completely. Um, Another theme that we see in the the gospel is the theme of truth-telling. Everywhere Jesus went, in the midst of this loving, gentle Jesus, he always spoke the truth. And he did it in times when it made people uncomfortable. I mean, think of the honesty that it took to tell the people who were ready to stone the woman caught in adultery. Um, uh, You who are without sin, cast the first stone. Or his words to the rich young ruler who would have been a supporter for the cause, uh, a lot of money for the, for the movement. He said, if you really want to follow me, you're going to have to let go of your of your wealth. his words to the Pharisees, you know, who tithed mint leaves so intent on being pure that they overlooked basic questions of justice. Wherever Jesus went, part of the good news that he brought was a capacity to speak the truth, to say things as they were always in a posture of love, because there is nothing that is so, um, so horrible that we try to hide. Nothing that you, that you have in your life that is so horrible that God's unconditional love isn't also going to be there. But we, we come to that love by speaking the truth. And finally, the healing of bodies, minds, and relationships, the good news of the gospel is the restoration of a broken creation. Everywhere Jesus went, he was about the business of bringing together that which was broken or divided. We see it most fully, of course, in in the healings. I mean, people literally brought back from the dead or withered limbs restored to strength, sight given back to blind people. But we also see uh, Jesus interested in healing uh, broken minds, restoring broken relationships, bringing together that which human beings and sin has divided. That's part of the good news of the gospel. And all of that adds up to an understanding of the gospel that is committed to participating with Christ in the restoration and the healing of a divided and broken world. And so, at their best... The distinctive emphases of the Anabaptist Mennonite tradition are really nothing more than an effort to extend the good news of the gospel that has been given to us to extend that outward to others. I'm not uh, committed to pacifism and peacemaking uh, because it's a liberal political position. I'm committed to it because God has loved me when I didn't deserve it. And I bear witness to the depth and the richness of that love to the extent that I also commit myself to love people who don't deserve it, people who are considered my enemies. When you hear uh, Mennonites, perhaps at Goshen College, raising questions about, say, the media's portrayal of women or concern about the treatment of immigrants or second thoughts about public rituals of nationalism or doubts about the fact that we're spending a billion dollars a day at war at the same time that 35,000 people every day die of starvation. When you hear people saying those things, consider the possibility that this is not just a political posture, but that it's an attempt to speak the gospel truth, even if that truth may go against the grain of conventional wisdom even if speaking the truth might make you uncomfortable, but it's speaking the truth in a commitment of love. In a similar way, our commitment to the idea of culture for service is nothing more than a conviction that all of our education is preparation for a lifetime of service to others, a commitment to healing bodies, minds, and relationships in whatever form that might take. And in so doing, we want to participate with Christ in the healing of a broken creation. All of this as an expression of gratitude and worship to a God who loved us when we did not deserve it. In a real sense, the core values at Goshen College are an effort to give voice to those ideals. That's the ideal. To be a Christian in the Anabaptist Mennonite tradition is to be transformed by Christ and to participate with others in the healing of our relationship with God, with each other, and with creation. We want to live nakedly, vulnerably, intimately, if you will, without pretense, as a step towards the healing of the world. I began this uh, whirlwind overview of the bare essentials of Mennonites with a historical context and with a theological summary, let me conclude by laying bare another set of realities that are also part of our tradition. This is the uh, confessional part of my reflections. The gap between these ideals and the reality is very wide. In our daily life and practice at Goshen College and in the broader church, we often do not live up to who we say we are. Let me offer just a few examples, and I'm sure that some of you could list many more. Sometimes in individuals as well as groups, the biggest strengths are also the biggest weaknesses. Take a community, for example. In a world that is lonely, Filled with people without family or a sense of of, of tradition, community is a gift. To be known, to be loved, a place where you can be vulnerable is a good thing. Yet the strong Mennonite emphasis on relationships can easily become exclusive. Great if you're on the inside, but tribalistic and impenetrable if you're on the outside. I know that many of you occasionally feel deeply lonely, uh, isolated and shut out on a campus that talks so much about community. And that is wrong. That is sinful. The solution is not to reject the ideal of community, but living dynamic communities, animated by the love of Christ, will always have permeable and porous boundaries. Healthy communities will be characterized by a posture of hospitality and embrace, not by the boundaries that exclude. Sometimes Mennonite insecurity can take the form of arrogance. Because we have a tradition of martyrdom, because we've sometimes taken positions that were unpopular, because we're such a small group in relation to others, we sometimes feel insignificant or irrelevant and in response, we tend to grab a hold of our differences and turn them into badges of honor. Other people say they follow Jesus. We're the ones who really do it. We're peacemakers, or we can sing really well, or we are really humble about all of our accomplishments. (laughs) Having a strong identity, Knowing what you believe is fine, but Mennonites are only one small corner of God's great kingdom, and I have learned a great deal from my ecumenical conversations that God is alive and at work among lots and lots of groups in places all over the world. Finally, although this doesn't exhaust the list, Mennonites have tended to emphasize practices How we act, we say, is as important as abstract doctrinal beliefs. And yet, if you've noticed, we are often very inconsistent and hypocritical in our practices. We can be ardent champions of toleration, for example, and yet quite intolerant and dismissive of political opinions that are different than ours. We can be great proponents of embracing cross-cultural perspectives and yet have little patience for worship styles that stretch beyond the familiar. We can take uh, principled stands for justice, uh, denouncing overseas sweatshops and boycotting Walmart, while on the weekends actively supporting a multi-billion dollar alcohol industry that is probably more directly associated with poverty and violence against spouses and has had a more negative impact on physical health and personal relationships than anything Walmart ever did. We can say things like, I'm a Mennonite but not a Christian, which I personally find um, offensive to the tradition and probably offensive to God. In case you haven't noticed, this Anabaptist Mennonite tradition which has been so central to the character and identity of Goshen College, which I've presented in this ideal light, is far from perfect. And if you have been at the receiving end of Mennonite exclusiveness or arrogance or hypocrisy, as someone who deeply loves this tradition, I want to offer my apology. There is much for which Mennonites need to repent. Yet I also know from my study that traditions can be renewed. They can be transformed. New life can be breathed into old bones. Two weeks ago, just before classes began here, I spent 10 days in Kenya, East Africa. The official reason for the gathering was to meet with uh, Anabaptist Mennonite church leaders uh, from 12 different countries who've carried out surveys of demography and beliefs and practices. It's part of a book that I'm writing on the global Anabaptist church. For most of my life as a scholar, I've focused on the history of the church. I've looked almost exclusively at Europe and North America, worrying about how this 500-year-old tradition was gonna stay alive. And there in Africa, I came face to face with a transformed Anabaptist Mennonite tradition. Group after group, uh, from Indonesia, from Ethiopia, from Honduras, from Nicaragua, the Philippines, Kenya, Tanzania, Vietnam, group after group, reported on the life and vitality of their churches. The average age of Mennonites in most of these churches is 26. Women are involved at many levels of leadership. These are people who are tuned into the presence of the Spirit. They're excited about the future. The gospel of reconciliation, the gospel of peace, the gospel that connects with people on the margins, people who've experienced persecution, is received as good news and their churches are growing. I came back from Kenya with a new picture of the church in my mind. 500 years after its beginnings in Zurich, Switzerland, Anabaptism continues to thrive in countries and cultures and languages far beyond Goshen College. God is at work in the world, beyond the traditional boundaries of Mennonite communities, and this is good news. But renewal of the tradition can happen at home as well. In 1927, a young history professor at Goshen College established a journal devoted to what he called Anabaptist Mennonite history, thought, life, and affairs. Began actually as a supplement to the Goshen College record and it continues to be published. It's called the Mennonite Quarterly Review. In the very first issue of that journal, issued as a supplement to the record, uh, which he dedicated to the young people at Goshen College and elsewhere, Harold Bender wrote the following words, the problems of the present are many, they're difficult, but the problems are challenges. They're opportunities for consecrated talent. The time never was and never will be when problems are not present. And then he closed with the following words, youth of the church, the church of tomorrow, the heritage is yours. The organization is yours, the talent is yours, the problems are yours, the future is yours. Get the vision, follow the gleam, bend your back to the burden, consecrate yourself to the task, you are needed, you are wanted, you are able, may God grant you the will Students, uh, faculty, staff, friends, regardless of your church affiliation, I hope that you can hear those words as an invitation to join in the high calling that brings us together here at Goshen College. Knit together by the love of Christ, may we join in the joyful and grand adventure of healing the world piece by piece. Amen.